Hey, this is John at The Bible Project, and today Tim and I are going to finish up a series that we've been calling Seventh Day Rest. This has been a really long series, and if you're just jumping in, I recommend you start from the beginning, but if you're not gonna, here's a quick recap. On page one of the Bible, God brings order to the universe in a series of six days, and on the seventh day, he stops, and he enters his creation like a king entering a temple to rest and rule. And God creates humans, calls the humans his image, and tells them to rest and rule with him in his creation. And this vision of rest on the seventh day is a hope that ancient Israel took seriously. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments is to stop working on the seventh day, or in Hebrew, Shabbat, and practice rest. And it wasn't just this one day. There's actually seven sacred festivals that all help ancient Israel remember who they are and where this story is heading. Each festival, a way to practice now what we hope for in the future, a time of unending, restful reign with God in his good creation. And there's more. Every seventh year, there's a whole year devoted to rest. And every seventh seven years, there's a culminating event called the year of Jubilee where all debts are forgiven, slaves are freed, it's the ultimate rest. In the last two episodes, we looked at how Jesus saw himself as the one bringing this ultimate rest. He claimed that the real year of Jubilee, the one that all of these festivals and practices are anticipating, that that reality is coming with him, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. This claim, amongst others, got Jesus killed. But the Gospels claim that Jesus laid in the tomb, resting on the Sabbath. And on the first day of a new week, he rose from the dead. And that power that brought Jesus back from the dead is available to us. God's spirit can live in us. And God's spirit is a sign that we too are destined for ultimate rest. And so now we come to our last stop in this series. While Jesus brought ultimate rest, it has yet to come fully we still find ourselves in a world of strife and struggle. And so, in this episode, we want to look at a passage in the book of Hebrews that brings these ideas full circle. We're going to look at Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, but here's a key verse in 4 verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their work, just as God did from his. And let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Seventh day is yet to come. It's something you enter in the present, which will come to its ultimate fulfillment in the future. In Hebrews 4, verse 6, he says, listen, everybody, it still remains for some to enter that rest. There's still a rest that uh, is yet to be entered into, a future rest. The author of Hebrews looks back at the wilderness generation in ancient Israel and sees it as a warning for us today. The design of the wilderness narratives in the Torah itself is trying to tell us that the arrival in the promised land is an image of the future seventh-day rest that is beyond. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. We're going to do the final episode in a long conversation around the seventh day. Yes. And we're having this conversation how much later than the original (laughs) Much later than we had the actual conversations that'll culminate in the video. Real time, we're talking in early December 2019. Yeah. 
we had the majority of the seventh day rest conversations in like the spring. I think early, mid spring of twenty mm. nineteen. Okay. So like nine months ago. Nine months ago. And I remember that conversation feeling like I left it feeling a little not unsettled, hmm. but but wanting. Yeah. And I remember feeling specifically, huh. man, we spent so much time hmm. getting so excited about this theme <laughs> of seventh day rest yeah. and all of these practices that ancient yeah. Israel had to remember it and to anticipate it. Mm. And I was woven into all these stories and it's just so rich. Mm -hmm. And then, and Jesus sees himself fulfilling it. And then we get to the apostle Paul and it's like, yeah, don't worry about it. Oh, That's how it felt to me. It just kind of felt like, oh yeah, all that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's cool. Jesus did that. He's he's Lord of the Sabbath. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't, Paul doesn't even talk about that. But he's just like, if you do the Sabbath or not, oh, you know, that's okay. Well, yeah, true. Though those are, I think, they're closely related things, but our whole discussion about the Gospels was that Jesus was presenting the arrival of the kingdom of God as the arrival of the ultimate seventh day. Mm-hmm. The jubilee that he was announcing is synonymous, identical with his arrival, the arrival of the kingdom of God. But you could imagine... And Paul was all about the arrival of the yes. kingdom of God. But, um, that, but while it's been inaugurated yes. and it's here... yes. It still hasn't come in full. And so practicing some sort of ritual, which mm. reminds mm. you right. that right. this this seventh day rest is yet to come, yeah. seems like it could be yep. something that the apostles would be stoked on. And mm-hmm. instead, yeah. you kind of get this sense of they their mind was somewhere else. It's like Paul wasn't like yeah. going around getting the early Christians to do any sort of Sabbath ritual. Right. He just didn't, it just wasn't on his yeah. radar. Well, what we have in his letters is responses yeah. to issues, usually problems, not always, of things arising in the churches. It got in the way, yeah. in a way, like yeah. that yeah. some early Christians who weren't Jewish, they didn't have a history of the Sabbath. Correct, that's right. And Paul's just like, yeah, don't worry about it. You don't need that. And and, and yeah, if someone else right. it does have a history of Sabbath and, yeah. and is doing it, yeah. that's great. I think I, I want to refocus that a little more. Great. It's not that he said it's not a big deal. It's that the weekly practice of the Sabbath, along with all the laws of the covenant, right. but especially the poignant ones in their cultural context, kosher food laws, circumcision of males, yeah. and Sabbath. Those were the most visible boundary Ethnic line markers. creating that set off the people of Israel from their neighbors. And so when Sabbath comes up, in the letters of Paul, it's because there are Messianic Jews, not all of them, but at least some, who are making a, a requirement to be a part of the family of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's the circumstance that compels him it's to not write a requirement. about what he does. And his point is, listen, the Torah of Moses played a crucially important role for the time that it was the thing that God was doing uh, in and through Israel. But now through the death and resurrection of the Messiah, the family of Abraham as it always was intended to be, now consists of many nations, not just one. And so those markers don't define the identity of God's people anymore. That, that's why then Paul says, if you want to honor Jesus through observance of the Sabbath, do that. Do that. He's like stoked on people being stoked on that. But he gets really down on people who say that you need to do it. Correct. That's right. I mean, really down on them. Oh, yeah. He's t- yeah. What he really, really 
gets worked up about is circumcision okay, that's the in the letter to the Galatians. For Paul, erecting any kind of entry barrier yeah. into the family of Jesus beyond trust in what he's done for me that I can't do for myself. Yeah, what, what he says is we are nullifying the grace of God. That's what he says. But what I got from you Galatians. after that conversation was the thing Paul was most interested in mm. were these love feasts. Yeah. That they get together. Fam- yeah, that's right. Yeah. Families yep. and extended families and that's neighbors right. and people of any ethnicity, gender, yep. socioeconomic status yeah. eating yeah. at the same table. That's exactly right. In the name of Jesus. Yes. And so I guess... And all the historical evidence we have uh, is that this was happening on Sunday, mm. which was the first day of the week by everybody else's calendar. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and after and, our conversation about the seventh day rest, mm-hmm. I was so jazzed. Yeah. You could have been like, so John, like change your week, like <laughs> beca- do a really strict Sabbath yeah. ritual. Yeah, totally. And I've been like, heck yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. Let's do this. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Uh, instead, we kind of ended with actually love feasts. Yeah, no, I think what we what you end with is the kingdom of God is has come. So you know, say the Lord's prayer, live by the Sermon on the Mount, love your neighbor, and uh, if uh, adhering to the ancient wisdom of the Sabbath ritual is gonna like help you do that in your life, then honor Jesus through observance of the traditional Sabbath. Paul seems fairly clear that, but if that's not that's not re- required, it's not required. And if you don't do that, you're not any less of a follower of Jesus. So what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is just that point, that it's good and it's wise, but Mm. it's not required. Mm. For you then, am I hearing you say it uh, undercuts the power that it could have? My question would be, why can't it still be powerful, Uh but not be required for entry into the family of Jesus? I don't know. No, that's a great point. Yeah. I think if I remember correctly, again, I'm remembering months back, yeah. didn't we? I used a metaphor that somebody who's very passionate about the observance of a weekly Shabbat on, from Friday to Saturday, I think might be offended by, and so I'm, I'm really not trying to be offensive, but I, I'm, I'm trying to understand Jesus' logic of saying something like, he's the Lord of the Sabbath in his bringing the kingdom of God that brings healing and mm-hmm. blessing on the... So he, Jesus really seems to communicate that he is bringing about the ultimate reality mm. to which all of these seventh-day rests, yeah. symbols and institutions pointed, institutions pointed. Not just the day, weekly one, yeah. but the annual ones and the seventh-year ones because yeah. they were all about one main ideal. Well, I guess all the law is like that in a way that if, if as Paul talks about it, is like a, a tutor or like a, it's yeah. helping you anticipate something. Yeah. And when that thing comes, correct, yeah. then why yep. focus on yeah. the thing which was just anticipating yeah. the thing? Yeah, which, which doesn't mean don't thing. do it. So the word focus is the key word in that sentence. Mm. It's not the main, the main thing is the arrival of the kingdom of God. And the advent of rest through Jesus. Mm. That requires, I think, at least I'm sure learning this in my middle age, for the long game to sustain that Mm -hmm. view and life posture (laughs) over the course of a lifetime requires rhythms and habits to sustain that worldview. And I think a weekly rhythm where you celebrate the dawn of the seventh day 
rest is really important. Mm. But the question is the cultural form in which you express it. Mm. I'm a big believer in how rituals shape us. Mm -hmm. And so it's really beautiful to see that in the seventh day, in the seventh day rituals was this this forming that was supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. And, what, and what you're just saying is we need those kind of things for the long run. Yeah. And so maybe there's this balance between there's freedom in Christ mm. and the point is Jesus. Mm-hmm. So if you turn it into then adherence to rituals, you're missing the point. Mm. But at the same time, mm-hmm. creating rituals in your life yeah. that help you follow Jesus. Yes is really important. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, it, if the family of Abraham was truly fulfilled through the Messiah, and it was always meant to be a multi-ethnic, multicultural family of the new humanity, it seems to me that the apostles are drawing out that logic in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and then in the apostolic letters, and in Peter's vision, right? Mm-hmm. With Cornelius. And the food. Yeah, that the cultural forms and practices that this movement is going to take will always be developing and changing in their shape and form Hmm. because it's by nature encompassing all of humanity and all of its diversity. Hmm. And so to trap how you practice the celebration of the new creation into one cultural form Hmm. and maybe not even making it a boundary marker to entry into the family of Jesus like some people were doing Mm -hmm. in Paul's day. But just saying this is the way you have to do it. Yeah, And just saying, I think there can be many ways that a community of Jesus could, and a family and a person, could create rhythms to accomplish the same end. (laughs) And I think it seems to me that's what Paul wants to safeguard, is that space for the Spirit to shape a community that is practicing these in new ways that haven't been even imagined before. Hmm. In his mind, it doesn't discount or dishonor the traditions that have come before. You're foolish to ignore them. Mm Mm-hmm but it doesn't mean you have to repeat them. And I'm just talking here about the rhythms, the cultural forms yeah. of how you practice certain, certain things in the Christian tradition. So here's what's tricky is that it's precisely the way that people practice these kinds of traditions and take out Sabbath, you know, and insert baptism or the Lord's Supper or whatever. Mm-hmm. And because they're so shaping on us, mm-hmm. we are very personally attached to them right? Mm-hmm. Communities get super invested in yeah. their particular way. Yeah, it begins and, to define your community. Yeah, it defi- exactly, totally. Yeah. And so I think that's the challenge is at what point are we allowing our, what the Spirit has led me or our community to do, but we're making it like the, the bar by which now every other group is measured. And it seems like that's what Paul wants to push us to like get a bigger, a bigger perspective. You know, did we, uh, another thing related to this, and I don't remember if we talked about it, about the relationship between the Friday night, the Saturday night Shabbat, and the Sunday celebration of Jesus' followers? Did how we that talk shifted? About? Yeah. Well, or just how they relate to each other. Oh. Yeah. I don't know if we did. I don't know. Because remember, you read the Cowboy Ten Commandments at yeah, some point in this conversation. Right. Yeah. And in that... Get yourself to a Sunday gathering. Yeah. In the American tradition... Sabbath has been completely shifted onto Sunday. Yeah. As if it's just like a Christian Sabbath. Yeah, go to church. Yeah, go to church on Sunday. Yeah, totally. Uh, This is an area of vigorous historical debate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've done as much reading as I have margin for over the years. But if anyone is interested in this question, um, there's an edited volume by a number of different high-level scholars 
Um, it's an edited collection by Donald Carson, D.A. Carson, mm. called From Sabbath to Lord's Day. Mm. Uh, it's the most, it's maybe like 20 essays, and they're all like 40 pages long. Mm. It's a massive book. But they, from everything from ancient Israel to Hebrew Bible to Jewish Second Temple to New Testament to the early centuries of the church, uh, they you know make the case that all the evidence points in that the Lord's Day of the Sunday celebration was never a replacement for or viewed as a, as a Christian Sabbath. Mm. Rather, it was viewed as the new thing. Hmm. The new, the new creation day that celebrates the resurrection of Jesus, hmm. and that many messianic communities continued in those first centuries to practice Shabbat, and then they would also celebrate Jesus like, on the next day. On Sabbath, you you mark the end of the week, yeah, and anticipation for the final yeah. day, yeah, right. And then on the next day, yeah. you get to celebrate resurrection that new creation has begun. Correct. That's right. Resurrection Sunday is about the first day of the new week. Yeah. Yeah. But the point is, is that they're not the same, and there isn't really any evidence that they were viewed by the same as the same in the first generation of Jesus' followers. <laughs> what this conclusion then would mean is that it's historically incorrect to call Sunday a Christian Sabbath. Right. Uh, it's... The Lord's Day. What it is, if you think of the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, mm-hmm. as distilling all of the themes of the seventh day rest mm-hmm. theme mm-hmm. in the Hebrew Bible, then in a way, the Resurrection Sunday, every single week you're celebrating what you really celebrate on Resurrection Sunday in the spring, like with Easter, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. And, but every Sunday is meant to be that resurrection celebration, not just one time a year. That a new week has begun, yeah. leading us to the final yeah. creation. Yeah, yeah, inaugurating the, new, inaugurating creation the new creation and leading us through the course of a new week until the. It's shifted from celebrating the last day of the week to the oh, first day of the week. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And there's a place for both. Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. Anyhow, so on that note, uh, there is actually one topic that we didn't discuss mm-hmm. um, in our earlier conversations in the series. That we kept alluding to. I think we just got to the end and we were tired, or I don't know what happened. <laughs> yeah. We don't know what happened, but we, we never talked about two chapters in the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. That talk about rest. That are such an important culmination of this whole theme. Yeah. So we thought we would go back, in, uh, even though it's months later, yeah. and uh, talk about these important two chapters. I'm excited to do that. Because they're awesome. Big picture, letter to the Hebrews, nobody knows who wrote it. People who have strong opinions. Share them. Share them. <laughs> and maybe they're right, but there's so many of those different strong opinions that it's hard to know. So the basic flow of the letter is it's, some, it's a pastor writing to a congregation of Greek-speaking, diaspora, most likely Messianic Jews. Because the way that he can session the, the, the scriptures of Israel and the amount of competency that he assumes on the part of the listener. High bar. It's high bar, next level. Yeah. And so, uh, but essentially what, he's trying to compel them not to abandon uh, their allegiance to Jesus. Hmm. There's, and he says this by the end of the letter, that there's some of them losing, losing confidence or losing courage because some people have been thrown in prison, some people have some form of persecution against these Messianic Jews. And so basically his letter is one huge like rhetorical hammer. Don't give up. <laughs> Elevating Jesus. Mm. 
he elevates Jesus in every possible way yeah. a Jew would know how <laughs> as he's talking to other Messianic Jews. Mm. So in chapters one and two, he elevates Jesus above the divine council. Mm. He is God become human as the chief of the divine council. He's not your average spiritual being. It's chapters one and two. The chapters uh, that we're going to look at, he elevates Jesus above Moses and Joshua. Yeah. In the chapters following, in chapter five, he's going to elevate him above Aaron and the whole priesthood, mm-hmm. then he's going to elevate him above the tabernacle and of all of the feasts. And it's exactly how one Jew would persuade another Jew. <laughs> <laughs> so what's cool about chapters three and four, th- were these little movements in Hebrews, they almost seem like distillations of sermons that, mm. he want, that the pastor once gave. Yeah. Because they're just rhetorically beautiful. Hmm. Uh, yeah. How do you want to do this? Do you want to just kind of like work our way through? Yeah. Great. Let's do that. All right. Hebrews. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1 begins kind of almost like a new beginning. Um, Therefore, my holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the one that we acknowledge as our apostle and as our high priest. And he begins to contrast him with Moses. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just like Moses was. Moses was faithful. Mm-hmm. Jesus was faithful. But then he says, but Jesus is more awesome. <laughs> Jesus is found worthy of greater honor than Moses, like a builder of a house is of greater honor than the house itself. Who Mm. built, assembled the first house for God in Mm. the Torah? Moses. But who was the builder of everything? God. So Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. Mm. And we are his house. (laughs) (laughs) Notice that little move there. So Moses built a building. What's funny is, I think in our context, this sounds like denigrating to Moses. No. Does it to you? Oh, okay. Some people take it that way. I could see that. Oh, he's trying to say Moses was awesome. Yeah, Moses was awesome. He built the yeah. He built the tabernacle. Exactly, yeah. And he was faithful. Yes. And he bore witness, and that's rad. Yep. You think that's rad? Yeah, yeah totally. How yeah. much cooler is it that God built yeah. well, all of creation? Yeah. And that also he is building you yeah. all yeah. into a temple where he dwells. That's right. And yeah. who is the builder of God's world? Yes. That's Jesus. It's the sun. The sun. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, thank you. That's yeah. good. Yeah, it's a good summary. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. So like, so follow Jesus. And and, <laughs> and like you said, it's a high bar. Like if you just jumped into Hebrews because you found a Bible, oh, you'd be yeah. like, what? Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Completely yeah. lost. Oh, yeah. And, and that's just the first step. <laughs> he really goes next level, starting in verse seven. So he just brings a, a new idea in the mix here. He just gives a long block quote from... Psalm 95, Hmm. Psalm 95. And he actually only quotes the last half of Hmm. Psalm 95. Though, as we're going to see, he assumes that you've uploaded the whole thing Hmm. because he assumes some things in the first half. (laughs) So it's this poem. Which I haven't. (laughs) It's this poem where in the poem, God starts speaking to you, the reader, in the psalm. Hmm. So he starts this block quote of Psalm 95, second half. Today, if y'all hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion 
and in the time of testing in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. The word rebellion, it's alluding to this narrative where the people、um, begin contending with Moses and with God in the wilderness.、Mm-hmm. Uh, the noun is merivah, contention.、Mm-hmm. And testing is a noun, masa, masa and merivah.、Mm-hmm. And these are the two of the stories in the Torah. Where Israel rebels against God in the manner of manna and water in the wilderness.、Mm. So he goes on, Your ancestors tested and tried me for 40 years.、Yeah. I kept providing for them. They saw what I did. So God says, I was angry. I was angry with that generation. Their hearts going astray. They haven't known my ways. So I swore on oath because I was mad. They will never enter my rest.、Hmm. That's the line. They will never enter my rest. Yeah. And. In context, this is referring to the promised land, right? Yeah, the rest is the promised land. Yeah, yeah. Now, get this. So let's pause real quick here. He's bringing up Psalm 95. Why is he bringing up Psalm 95 out of nowhere here, right? Because he wants to talk about rest. <laughs> yeah,、oh, that's right. Correct. But he's been talking about Moses. Then he's going to bring up the stuff about rest. But instead of just talking about the wilderness narratives, he uses Psalm 95.、Mm, yeah, he could have just. Yeah. In other words, why didn't he just start talking about the、yeah. wilderness narratives? He's、yeah. going to in a minute.、Hmm. Why Psalm 95?、Hmm. So this, this is really fascinating. Psalm 95 begins with a call saying, Everybody, sing for joy to Yahweh. Everybody, shout out loud to the rock of our salvation. The rock. The rock. The rock of our salvation. So, God is being called the rock of rescue. This is new development, but I've been really trying it on lately, using the word rescue. Oh, instead of salvation? As a, the synonym for save. Yeah, I think the word salvation、mm, so、loaded. is so loaded for people that a fresh, a kind of a new word、mm-hmm. that means the same thing, but gets you thinking in a new way is the word rescue. Hmm. Hmm. So, I'm going for it. I like that. And it makes a nice alliteration right here the rock of rescue, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So, let's praise the rock of rescue. What's that?、Mm-hmm. Why, how is God the rock of rescue? What does that even mean? A rock of salvation?、Uh, the poem goes on to say Yahweh is the great king above all the other Elohim.、Mm-hmm. Verse three. And then he goes through ah, the three tiered、mm. cosmos.、Mm-hmm. And his de- hands are the depths of the earth. Yeah. That's the below. Yeah, the deep the place、abyss. below the land. Yep. The, the mountain peaks belong to him. The highest the land. place. The high places of the land. Oh, the high, okay. And、yep. the sea is his. The sea. And the dry land. Oh, so, so the mountain peaks are kind of about the sky. Yeah, so they, yeah, they're up they're touching, touching the, the, sky. the sky. Yeah. So from, yeah, b- the water below the earth to the highest point of the earth that touches the heavens and, or the sea and the dry land. Yeah. Which is kind of a horizontal.、Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Vertical?、Oh, I've never noticed that. Verse four is vertical.、Mm. Verse five is horizontal.、Mm. The sea and the dry land. Yeah. Yeah. But the, all, all of the cosmos. Yeah, the whole cosmos、uh, is the work of his hands. So let's bow down and worship, kneel before the Lord Yahweh, our maker. He made the cosmos、mm-hmm. and he made us.、Mm-hmm. How did he make、uh, his people? He's our Elohim. We are the people of his pasture. We are the flock that he cares for. We are his flock. So, so that's the first half、yeah. of Psalm 95. W- when did God create a flock <laughs> of、oh. his people? I think we're meant to upload the, like, the Exodus story here. Because、mm, okay. the Exodus is how he creates, a, it's a new creation act where he brings his people through the waters to, to the dry land of rest and so on.
So the point is, this psalm's riffing off all kinds of stuff in Genesis and Exodus. And, yeah. Right. But this phrase, the rock of our salvation, and there's this interesting story right after the people go through the waters in Exodus. And in Exodus 17, um, the people are thirsty. The Mara? It's the bitter water? Yeah. Uh, Rephidim. And there's no water there. And so the people quarrel with Moses. Uh-huh. And so they say, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us of thirst out here in oh, the wilderness? Okay, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So here's what God says to Moses. Speak to the rock. Almost. almost. We're okay. almost there. So this is verse 5, Exodus 17. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders, take in your hand a staff. Uh-huh. You know that one that you struck the Nile with? Yeah. Strike the rock. Oh. Oh, oh so verse 6, sorry. This is the key detail. This is what he always says. I will stand there for you on the rock at Mount Horeb, strike that rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this and they called the place testing, Massah, and Merivah, quarreling, mm. <laughs> because they, Massah and Merivah. So that's the story. Wait, is this the story you got in trouble for? Uh-uh. Oh, this is a different later. story. It's later. We'll talk about that in a second. Okay. Um, the whole point is uh, this rock, is this is the rock of rescue. Oh, this is the rock of rescue? The rock of rescue. Huh. Yahweh stands on the rock. <laughs> That's what he says. Yeah. And he says, Moses, strike the rock. Mm-hmm. And then he provides water for the people out of the rock. And then um, what you find is in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, for the first time, uses, as he recalls, these wilderness journeys in Deuteronomy 32, specifically verse 15. And he calls Yahweh the rock of rescue. Mm. Oh, he does in Deuteronomy. The rock that rescued them. (laughs) Yes. So this is a thing. Um, Yahweh is the rock of rescue. (laughs) How? By providing water, providing life in the the middle of of a wilderness space. Okay. So there's these wilderness stories of rebellion that involve the manna. You remember we looked at this one. They wanted quail and meat Mm -hmm. and they wanted water here. Then they're camped out at Mount Sinai for a year. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side of... Sinai, they leave in the book of Numbers. Mm -hmm. So they leave Mount Sinai in Numbers chapter 10. And what follow are a whole series of rebellion stories Mm. in Numbers chapters 11 through 21. Do you want to just guess how many rebellion stories there are? Is there seven? There's seven, exactly. And even more so, they're in a symmetrical design so mm. that the first one matches the last, the second one matches the fifth. It's a chiasm. It's a big chiasm. So the f- one in the middle then. The one in the middle rebellion is number go. four. It's um, where the spies go into the land and they see the giants, mm. the sons of Anakim, mm. who are as big as the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. And they're freak out and they're like, no, we can't do it. <laughs> and Caleb and Joshua are like, yeah, yeah, we can. That's the pivot because that's the story where God makes an oath. I will not let them enter my rest. Mm. That's the center story. So there's a collection of seven rebellion stories. And at the center is the one that got him. At the center, yep. Booted from right. the rest. At the center is the one that's being referred to in Psalm 95 at mm. the end. But then what's interesting is the sixth one is uh, where the people are thirsty and they say, Why did you bring us out here to kill us with thirst? And what God tells Moses to do is speak to the rock, not strike it. And uh, he gets angry and strikes the rock anyway two times. Hmm. And then God says that that was a lack of faith. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Moses fails. This is the moment of Moses' failure too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, it seems like 
the author of Hebrews is using Psalm 95 because it simultaneously is activating the rebellion stories on both sides of Mount Sinai, before oh. and after. Yeah. And it allows him, the mention of the rock of rescue allows him to use this title for God who gave them life in the desert, mm-hmm. but ultimately they rejected the life that wanted to give, God wanted to give them in the desert. These are exactly the things that the author of Hebrews is going to bring up. Mm. Okay. Sorry, that was, I don't know if that was too long. Oh, but the point of those seven stories, uh-huh. these are the seven stories that exclude them from the ultimate seventh day rest. Oh, yeah. Right? The seven rebellions that keep them from... Entering the seventh day rest. Which for them was the promised land. Promised land is that rest. Exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what these are is design patterns mm-hmm. in the future in, as you're reading throughout um, the Torah. So as you come back to Hebrews 3 then, he, what he's going to go on to do is say, listen, this psalm wasn't just about our ancestors in the past. This psalm is to every generation of Israel mm. who has yet to enter the ultimate seventh day rest, which is exactly the point that he draws. He says, listen, everybody, let's encourage each other every day as long as it's called Today, <laughs> of Psalm 95. Mm. Psalm 95 said, today, listen. Today. Listen. Yeah. Not the, not, the past is just yeah. an instruction for the people waiting to go into the future rest. So today, we have come to share in the Messiah if we hold on to our conviction uh, firmly until the very end. Just like it's been said. Hey, don't be like the people of the wilderness generation. Who were the people who heard and rebelled? Well, it was the people Moses let out. Uh, Why did they perish there in the wilderness? Because of their lack of trust, he says. The point is he reads those wilderness narratives as a challenge and exhortation to every future generation Hmm. that from the... You could get lost in the wilderness too. Yeah, that's right. If you don't listen to his voice. Yes. And you harden your heart. Correct. you rebel. That's right. And the whole design of of the wilderness narratives in the Torah is trying to tell you that the promised land itself is an image of the ultimate future seventh-day rest. Say that again. The design of the wilderness narratives in the Torah itself mm. is trying to tell us that the arrival in the promised land is an image of the future seventh-day rest that is beyond. How does it do that? Uh, well, those rebellion narratives mm-hmm. are a huge like wet blanket on the storyline of going into the promised land. So they go into the promised land, but it's only the second generation because all the yeah. parents are dead. But de- the second generation get de- in, so they find the rest. Oh, right. In theory. In, in theory, theory. Until they repeat the sins of their ancestors. And they never really do find the rest. In the land, correct. And so you're saying because there really isn't ever any rest found in the promised land. Throughout the whole Hebrew Bible. Throughout the whole Hebrew Bible. Keep you saying read that yeah. and you're clearly like, yeah. whatever this promised land rest is, mm-hmm. it doesn't happen when you enter the promised land. That's right. And inhabit it. That's right. It and requires so the, more. So that's right. And so the point of Psalm 95 
is those past narratives are an image of the future hope. Now, we've, we haven't done any sort of theme on land. Oh, yeah. In a way, this video is it. <laughs> this video? It, it's, it represents one aspect of one what aspect the land of is. It. Yeah. I mean, someone was just remarking about how the number one promise in the Hebrew Bible is about the land. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, totally. And then it seems like here, when we're talking about entering the rest, mm-hmm. we're referring to the promise of the land. Yeah. But are we talking about the promise of the land anymore? In its narrative sense. What does that mean, its narrative sense? Oh, well, if you're just in the narrative, thinking from the narrative perspective of these characters, mm. it's about the land yeah. of Canaan. A place where you can live in freedom yeah. Yeah, and that's right. abundance. That's right. Actually, no, a, a distinct video on the land would be cool because the land that is actually possessed by the Israelites never even comes close to the land borders promised to Abraham. Oh. <laughs> and by the time you get into the prophets, the land uh, gets expanded out to encompass the whole of creation. When they talk about the land? Uh, uh, very often. That's mm. right. There's a handful of key texts where, just like in the seventh day, mm. becomes an image of the transcendent time of the new creation. So that particular plot of land becomes an icon for the whole of the mm. of the new creation. That'd be interesting to look at. And, but you can see part of that go- going on right here. Mm-hmm. So in Hebrews 4, verse 6, he says, listen, everybody, it still remains for some to enter that rest. There's still a rest that uh, is yet to be entered into, a future rest. Now, if you were uh, a Jewish person in the first century reading that, you could think, oh yeah, we'll get the land back, we won't be occupied, mm-hmm. and we'll have abundance and freedom here in this land that was promised to us. Mm-hmm. Is that what the writer of Hebrews is talking about? No, I think he's following a different line, a different line of interpretation. In his mind, the promised land, the actual promised land, what we today call Israel-Palestine, mm-hmm is an image of something greater and more and more expansive. But what he's focusing on is on the seventh day, not the land as such. But for him, it's universal. I see. So when he says enter the rest. Yeah, let's, let's, let's just watch his logic. Okay. okay, let's go back up to verse three of chapter four. So he's contrasting, he's saying, listen, the previous generation, they died yeah, yeah. in the wilderness, right? Verse three, now we who have trust, we do enter that rest. Hmm. Just as God said, he quotes Psalm 95, I declare it on my oath, they won't enter my rest. And then he says this, and yet God's works have been finished since the creation of the world. For, you know, somewhere in the Bible, (laughs) it has spoken about the seventh day with these words. He quotes from Genesis 1, on the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. But then again, in the passage we're talking about, Psalm 95, it says, they shall never enter my rest. Do you see what he's doing here? He sees hmm. Genesis 1, which says God rested. Hmm. That's his rest. But then he reads Psalm 95 and says, but here God's saying my rest is something yet to come. Yeah. So which is it? Did God rest in the past or is the rest to come yet in the future? So he draws the conclusion, verse 6, it still remains. Hmm. There's still... The seventh day is yet to come. Seventh day is yet to come. But he also said in verse three, we have entered it. 
By believing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's something you enter in the present, yeah. which will come to its ultimate fulfillment in the future. That's right. It's something that God did in the past. Mm-hmm. <laughs> something we could enter in the present. Mm-hmm. And it's something is yet to be fulfilled to in be the future. Fulfilled. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since the people who formerly had good news announced to them didn't enter into it, thinking about the wilderness generation, through Psalm 95, God is, as it were, renewing the call, calling it today, saying, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And then look at this, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest... Because he's the one that brought them into the promised land. Yes, totally. Now he's writing in Greek. You spell... Joshua mm-hmm. in Greek, with the Greek letters, Jesus. Hmm. It's the name Jesus. Oh. No, in other words, for you reading this in Greek, it's the word, it's the name Jesus. Hmm. And that's for sure he's winking at you here. Hmm. So if, if that previous Jesus had given them rest, why are we talking about another day in hmm. Psalm 95? And then verse 9, so I'm telling you, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And the implication is the risen Jesus, not the Jesus of the past, has opened up the Sabbath rest for the people of God. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. So let's make every effort to enter into that rest. So, uh, you know, this guy's all over the Old Testament scriptures, but he's drawing together these threads from Genesis 1, from the image of the promised land as a new Eden, ultimate seventh day rest, from the wilderness narratives showing how Israel never attained that rest. And in this author's mind, that actually summarizes the whole Old Testament story, even the whole monarchy, right? Mm -hmm. With David and so on, he just dismisses as one long period of disobedience, (laughs) (laughs) which is how the prophets understood it too. Mm. And so he reads the Old Testament the way that the final shapers of the Tanakh did, which is that the ultimate rest has never yet happened to our people yet. But the one who's greater than Moses and greater than Joshua, Jesus, will has opened up that rest for us. Hmm. You want to see something interesting? If you look in chapter um, 12 of Hebrews, mm-hmm. he actually talks even more about how we have come to that rest. It's, a, it's available in the present. Look at verse 22 of chapter 12. He says, You all have arrived at Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyous assembly, that's the divine council, <laughs> to the assembly or the, the church, ecclesia, of the firstborn, whose names are all written in heaven, You've come to the God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. 
and his sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than a blood even of Abel. In other words... It's pretty packed. <laughs> yeah, totally. The point is, is he believes in the present, in this present age, we have already come into contact with the new creation, the ultimate seventh day rest, which he calls Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, all of the new humanity that inhabits the new creation. It's already happening. It's already something you can experience. Hmm. In the present, uh, he says in chapter six, you get a taste of the, these powers of the new creation through the Spirit. So this is why, do you remember, you drew attention to this a moment ago where, wait, is the ultimate rest something in the past? Is it in the present or in the future? Yeah. And in his mind, it's, it's like it's all, it's all of them. Hmm. If you were to sit him down, it's a hymn now all of a sudden, but the author <laughs> to the Hebrews, and say, okay, that's very beautiful language. What do you mean? Like I'm, oh. <laughs> like yeah. I'm a yeah. first century, yeah, yeah, Roman yeah. citizen. Sure, my allegiance is to Jesus now. Mm. I'm serving the poor. I'm eating uh, these meals in in a community where mm. we we love each other and and hierarchies don't matter. Mm. But life is still difficult. Yes, and I'm yep. still paying taxes. Yep. And yeah, sometimes yeah. the crops sucks. Yeah, yep. what are you talking about? I've come to Mount Zion. I'm not. I'm not on Mount Zion. I'm yeah. wherever. I'm in Ephesus. Yep. Yeah. And I don't see angels everywhere. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Um, like, so what? What are you talking about? Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, first, let's. And I'm not like dismissing this. All I'm saying, um, this is a written sermon. Yeah. So this is the point at which you know, in a sermon, I'm not this kind of <laughs> preacher. Sure. Yeah. I'm really a teacher, is what I am. Yeah. But, you know... It's you know, motivating. Yeah, he's being a motivational preacher right yeah, now. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And what he's also referring to, I think, is the service of worship in their gathering. Mm. The idea is, and this, this concept of worship, this is a whole new frontier for me that I'm reading deep into right now hmm. as we get into apocalyptic, is that um, the temple liturgy yeah. of Israel's temple has had a fundamental influence on the history of concepts of worship right into Messianic... Judaism and early Christianity, so that when the gathered people of God come together, it's as if they create on earth the mirror of the celebration happening in the new creation. Mm. Pick your metaphor. If you want to use spatial metaphors, it's in the heavenly Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. If you want to use time imagery, it's in the future. future rest. Yeah. But the point is, in the present, when God's people gather to bring their prayers and their joys and celebrate together in the name of Jesus, they are creating a bit of heaven on earth through worship. I think that's why he brings up, you've come essentially to the temple and are participating in angels and the souls of the righteous made perfect in a joyful assembly. He's describing like a, a day, hmm. a Sabbath day in the temple courts hmm. when the Le Levitical choirs are doing their thing. And hmm. So I think that's what he's referring to here. Yeah. So... He or she <laughs> really believes that when God's people are gathered in the power of the Spirit, praising Jesus, that, um, and you bring all of the stuff you in the week where you tried to love your neighbor and you tried to be aware of the people hurting people around you and you bring all those burdens and cares and joys into the weekly gathering and you bring it all before Jesus alongside all these other people who are trying to follow Jesus too. Mm -hmm. And you announce that he's the king of the universe, despite 
what everybody else says around us. I think that's what he means right here. Mm. You're, the stuff happens. Yeah. By the way, I'm not describing how I feel about church <laughs> on, many su- on many Sundays. Uh, the way I often feel and experience church is that my, my six-year-old is um, asking for like a snack and yeah. he's like tired and falling asleep and yeah. my eight-year-old is can't stay still and I all of a sudden 20 minutes has gone by and I haven't listened to anything <laughs> you know that's often my experience of church I think, but. I think that's one reason why this idea of practicing a Sabbath or practicing the Sabbath in a traditional way even yeah yeah has become really appealing to people is because there's this restlessness mm-hmm. about mm. the lack of significance and meaning in some some Protestant traditions. Yeah, that's, yeah. I think that's. I think and you're right about there's that. There's this desire of like, there's got to be something. Yeah. To to shake that up. Yeah. Shake that up and yeah. Make this really come to life more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and some people might find that by um, discovering traditions that are more connected to a historical form of a Christian liturgy. Mm. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are doing that. And I and I understand that appeal more than ever mm. because um it's so non it's a type of church experience that's not designed to meet my needs in any way <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing there's nothing there's no marketing involved it's just like <laughs> this I, is how we do it I, yeah there's this story that's been being retold through these symbols and practices for thousands of years and I go participate in it to remind myself of what is ultimately true. But for there are some people who experience that as it doesn't help them. <laughs> it's not helping them connect right. to ultimate reality and to the personal presence of Jesus. Yeah. For some people, their local church and Sunday gathering is where that happens. Yeah. And for other people, it might need to be reinventing it and discovering something in their home yeah. or in their family or in their house or something. I don't I don't know. Yeah. I, I, but I think what's exciting is to think about the opportunity, mm. regardless of how you're going to do it, is that we live in the story mm-hmm. and where history is being culminated mm-hmm. in a seventh day. Yes. And that seventh day is still packed with all that meaning yes. of creation as it should be, resting and ruling with God and his wisdom mm-hmm. and abundance and freedom. Mm-hmm. And to anticipate that is part of our calling mm-hmm. and however you do that there's mm-hmm. tons of cool ways you could do that mm-hmm. that that really is yeah. shapes you yes and it gives you kind of a new vision for how to think about the world that we're navigating and yeah. all of its problems yep and then on top of that we've got this even another image of yes that seventh day is coming but it's also it happened with jesus yeah which inaugurated a new week and we get to celebrate that too yeah. of resurrection and new creation in this like at this next level mm-hmm. of anticipation. Mm-hmm. And if the way that you're mm. remembering that in community is feeling stale, there's tons of ways yeah. to mix that up. Yeah, that's right. And I think for for mm. me and for people who come from mm. a tradition that's kind of been I come from a non-denominational tradition, so it's kind of like mm. we don't have any traditions. <laughs> Like we just kind of uh, like the tradition of not having traditions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so there's this kind of like, there's this willy nilly spirit of like, we'll just do youth group however we want to. And we'll do this and like Mm -hmm. um, Mm. that has its own trap in which you're now just kind of like chasing the new fad. Yeah. 
usually a decade late. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and yeah. that's become tiring. So then there's this yeah. th- thought of like, yeah. let's just do something that's been done for yeah. ages. Yeah, sure. But then for other people, you know, yeah. it, there's going to be a different sentiment. Yeah, sure. And uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, think of the core principles we talked through in the series. Um, back to that first, the first conversations we have that in the history of Sabbath practice, one of the main things is by inconveniencing my life one day mm. in a weekly rhythm, it reminds me that my time is not my own, mm. but it's subject to the rule and reign of God. Yeah. That's awesome. Like, I need to be reminded of that. Mm. And the way and the rhythm, the cultural form that that takes, it will probably vary. Well, it has varied in the course of my own life, and it probably will need to vary again. So, but that's a core idea. The idea that the ultimate reign and rule of God, is, which is what I hope for in the culmination of all creation, has already been launched and is already at work in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So what does it mean for me to participate that in that ev- with my entire life? Mm-hmm. But then also to mark out rhythms of weekly moments where I can remind myself of that story because it's difficult to believe, mm-hmm. at, least, at least for me. <laughs> and I need rhythms to remind me of it. So those are things that could be expressed in lots of different forms, couldn't mm-hmm. they? Yeah. I think. And I think that's what the apostles thought, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is why they made the decisions that they did at the Jerusalem Council, to which you and I stand indebted to. <laughs> mm. As Gentiles, right, on the other side of the planet, 2,000 years later, <laughs> we are directly affected by their decision, <laughs> right? And that we're not following all of the Jewish laws. Yeah, or, or uh, that it creates an open space of freedom for the Holy Spirit to guide future generations into what, how they're going to faithfully and rhythmically live out this vision of life and of the universe and of the hope for the seventh day rest. Hmm. I think that, and that, I think that's what Paul, what we see Paul pushing his communities towards in the places where Sabbath became a controversy, whether in Galatia or in Colossae or in Rome. Hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's unfortunate that it's become such a point of controversy, right? Sabbath practices, because what it has always been meant to do is be create a space for freedom and creativity and hope. And uh, I, I hope that's what these conversations, and I really hope that's what the video can kind of invite people into. Cool. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bible Project Podcast. This video on Seventh Day Rest is going to release on our YouTube channel in the first week of 2020. I just got to watch the final version with sound design and it is my new favorite video and uh, I'm excited for y'all to see it. I feel like it recaps what we discussed really well has some really beautiful um, symbols in it it's great and so I'm, I'm looking forward to you all seeing that thanks for listening through this pretty dense conversation on seventh day rest we're going to begin in the new year a new series on trees in the Bible. Trees, they have a significant animated role in the biblical story. They are not passive. Trees play an active role. It's a really exciting series. I am looking forward to releasing it in 2020. 
The Bible Project is a nonprofit organization. We are in Portland, Oregon. We exist to show that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. We make all sorts of videos that you could find on our website, thebibleproject.com, and they're all for free because of a huge group of people like you who are supporting this. Thank you so much. We also have this podcast, other resources. You could check it out. Check back tomorrow. We're going to release a real special, quick podcast update on the last day of the year. If you don't listen to that, then I'll say now, happy, happy new year. We're so glad to be a part of this with you. Hi, my name is Micah. I'm Brent. And this is Audrey. We're all from um, Mayor Christian's School. I first heard about the Bible Project um, when... My church, they did a little video of it, and I thought it was really cool, so I went home with my brothers, and uh, we got right onto our computers and started watching it right away. I use the Bible Project to help me understand the verses that are hard for me to go over my head. My favorite thing about the Bible Project is that it's local here in Portland, so you can actually come and meet the people who run this. We believe the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. We're a crowdfunded project by people like me. Find free videos, study notes, podcasts, and more at thebibleproject.com. The